This morning, we are so grateful that, it, that it, it is finished. It was finished on the cross. And that those who believe in Jesus can enjoy the benefits of the death of Christ and resurrection life. Life that you purchased for us by raising from the dead. Life that can be ours through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray this morning, even now, that your Holy Spirit would have his way in our hearts. I pray that you would allow your Spirit to convict us of sin, lead us to illumination, the ability to to see and understand and know the Scripture, the truth that is there. Make it alive in our hearts, I pray. And may we as your people, those who are people of faith, may we come to enjoy again as we're reminded of the resurrection, reminded again of the purpose for which you call this, the purpose of worship, the purpose of mission and obedience and carrying out this good word of resurrection life to the world around us. Father, I pray for those who who this morning have never placed their faith in hope in Christ, who have never testified or confessed their sin, have never asked for forgiveness, Lord, that you would, through your word this morning, draw hearts to yourself. Make your gospel sweet to them. Make your word penetrate the soil of their heart, and may it flourish to abound in fruit for them and fruit for others. Father, I pray that you would be glorified through our time this morning and that the wonder of of what you accomplished for us through your earthly ministry, through your death and resurrection, that it would be poignant for us this morning as we look into the scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you this morning have had, can resonate with the testimony of having experienced uh, the great and terrible times of life. God often takes us through great and terrible times so that he can draw our attention to the great and wonderful Savior. In Anna's testimony, her her mom came to a place of asking herself the question and wondering, what if God were to use my cancer, this tragedy in my life, and, and maybe even my death, to to bring about the resurrection, conversion life in my father? What if this tragedy in my life could lead to triumph for him? Really, that's what we celebrate on Easter. What we celebrate on this day is we celebrate the the tragedy, as it were, of of, of Christ, the Son of God, being put to death, the, the righteousness of Christ in facing the injustice of men, the wickedness of men, and putting him on the cross, killing him there, that tragedy led to the triumph of Easter. That tragedy led to the overcoming power of Christ in purchasing for us resurrection life that those who believe can enjoy. That's what we're talking about this morning. God has given us the testimony of Easter And all that Easter has to give to us in terms of this resurrection life and forgiveness of sin is what we're going to move towards towards the end of this service. And the passage that kind of is the 
the home base, as it were, in, in helping us understand what, what Jesus accomplished for us is found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's where we're going. The resurrection accomplished this for those who believe. But before we get to the results of the resurrection, I want to acquaint ourselves with the resurrection story. We, it should never grow old. It's the kind of story that, that should constantly bring wonder and amazement into our hearts as we, as we read it. So I want to provide some, some observations for us. We want to, I want to just recall this story for us again. And the story itself would be sufficient meaning the truth of God's resurrection should be enough. That the fact that God has told us that he raised his son from the dead should be enough. But God, by his grace, not only brings the sufficient truth, but confirms that truth with spectacular works. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to bring the word of God, but, but the testimony of that word was validated by the power of Christ in overcoming demons, in helping to heal diseases, in walking on water, in stilling the waves. The, the power of God was resident in Christ, which confirmed the power of God through the word of Christ. And so as we come this morning to the resurrection, it is enough that the Bible says that Jesus was resurrected, but as we look into the word, we'll see in this passage the testimony in grace of God to show us clear and evident truth, proofs that demonstrate that what God has said is, in fact, true. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be reading through the portion of Scripture, verses 1 to 10. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you, use the pew Bible ahead of you, it's page 835. So page 835 is Matthew 28. I want to read this for us. And there are seven, at least seven proofs of the resurrection that help us to know how do we know the resurrection is true? Because if the resurrection is going to do work for us, if the resurrection is what accomplishes salvation power for us, it's important for us to establish that the resurrection actually happened. So let me read this for us, beginning in verse 1, chapter 28. It says this. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
We find in this passage not only the testimony of the resurrection, but we see established throughout seven evidences for the resurrection. I just want to call our attention to observe this morning. The first is found in verse 1 and 2. The great earthquake. The great earthquake that was a testimony of God in the world of allowing the world to, to bear a sense of testimony in, in helping the, the world and those who were living in Jerusalem at the time to, to know that something definitive, something distinct had happened. Natural phenomena like this were always viewed in the, in the first century as a spectacular work of divine power. Even today, when natural disasters take place, when there's floods or famines or earthquakes or tsunamis, we, we, we sometimes find ourselves asking the question, what, what is God trying to say? What, what kind of judgment is God trying to communicate to the world? That would have been especially true, this heightened state of sensitivity to spiritual things in the first century, recognizing that there were powers that were bigger than themselves, powers of God who were put on display in the world. God so often sent his word to mankind through the messenger of the world. That the world would play a part, creation would play a part in, in bearing testimony to the credibility of the word of God. Uh, we celebrated just a, a couple of days ago the Good Friday Seder. And, and in the Seder, this Passover meal uh, sprinkled throughout this time that the families would have together was, was a reminder in, in calling attention to the work of God in delivering his people that happened, how? Through the wonders that God sent to Egypt, whether they were flies or locusts or hailstones or fire, these testimonies of nature that were bearing witness to God's power over the gods of Egypt. Just a seven days earlier on the triumphal entry, Jesus would make his way into Jerusalem and the scribes and the Pharisees complaining a little bit about the crowds that were following Jesus saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And these scribes saying, put these people to silence. Tell them to be quiet. Remember Jesus' response? He says in Luke 19, 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very rocks would cry out. And hear the testimony at the moment of Jesus' resurrection life, the rocks cry out to bear witness in a phys physical way, a work of God to say, God has done his work. This true to the word, the rocks cry out at the moment of Jesus' resurrection, signifying the work of the creator God in paying for sin and overcoming death. There was a great earthquake we see there in verse 2. The first evidence of God's power of the resurrection. The second is also found in this passage as we look a little um, uh, further ahead in our, in our text, if we back up to Matthew chapter 27, not only was there a earthquake that took place during the resurrection of Christ, there was also an earthquake that took place at the moment of Christ's death. Notice, beginning in verse 45 of chapter 27, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Two earthquakes. The first earthquake and the second both signifying the divine hand of God. But in the second earthquake, the the one that was actually at his death, gives testimony to a resurrected Savior. Resurrected saints. That's our second evidence this morning. Resurrected saints. The earth split open. The graves were open. This foreshadowing of an event that was going to happen in three days, the resurrected Savior was preceded by this announcement of God in resurrection life that he was bringing to to dead saints, that they were there in those graves. And now leading those saints out, they go into Jerusalem and they testify to the people in the city, be aware, we have a God who brings resurrection life. And so when the resurrection would come and the people would hear of Jesus being resurrected, they had the preceding testimony of resurrection life that had just happened in front of them. Of course, the religious leaders had had come to understand just a couple of months earlier this testimony of God's resurrection power as Jesus would stand at the grave of Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come forth. These religious leaders who had come to comfort Mary in Martha at the passing of their brother, witnessed this resurrection power of Christ. And as a result of, of all that Jesus had done there at Lazarus's tomb, just a, a couple of months before this event, we find in John chapter 11, verses 45 and 48, the response. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, meaning the resurrection of Lazarus, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. The undeniable, indisputable fact of the resurrection of Lazarus had already set the city of Jerusalem in the surrounding region in a place of recognizing this powerful work of God to raise the dead. It was a witness, again, of what Jesus would do in raising himself from the dead on this resurrection morning. First an earthquake, then resurrected saints. Now we have an open tomb, as we find in chapter 28, verse 2. Notice, Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. (laughs) One of the burning questions in the minds of these women who came to the tomb, or we find in Mark chapter 16, verses two and three, 
It says, on very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, speaking of these women, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They understood that, that typically in the, the first century, as graves were cut out of the rock, these massive stones would be rolled in front of the tomb to prevent robberies. Mary Magdalene was there. We find in Matthew chapter 27, verse 62, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was there sitting opposite the tomb. They, they saw the preparation of Jesus' body. They, they saw Jesus being laid in the tomb. They would have seen this massive rock waiting to be rolled over the entrance of this tomb. They knew that it was impossible for them to do it on their own. Who would roll away the stone? To their surprise, they find the tomb open, an open tomb. Luke chapter 24, verse two says, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Another grace of God to remove the obstacles, to allow those who would be followers and disciples of Christ to see for themselves and also to allow those who were antagonistic to the gospel and ministry of Jesus to see for themselves. The stone was rolled away to remove the obstacles, to, to welcome those who might believe, to see for themselves that Jesus, in fact, raised himself from the dead. A great earthquake. Resurrected saints. An open tomb. Fourth, an unguarded tomb. We find in verses two and four, Unbeknownst to these women, a Roman guard had been set in place the night before at the request of the scribes and Pharisees. In a, in a way, they kind of sealed their own fate because they, they, they secured uh, this tomb which helped to reinforce the, the wonder and power of God to, to open this tomb. Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 to 66 gave, give us testimony of this. It says, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, while he was still alive, said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers, go. Make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Isn't it fascinating that scribes and Pharisees remembered what the disciples had forgotten? Isn't it interesting that these scribes and Pharisees in, in securing the, the tomb and providing a guard made another obstacle that God would have to clear in order to demonstrate his power to raise his son from the dead? We find in verse two, behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. This angel appearing in, in brilliant light, flashing clothes, and in his presence, these guards who are who are designed to be warriors, who, who are built for courage, who have no vested interest, had put Jesus on the cross, and their hearts melt away for fear, and they run for cover. 
Here they are, cowering in fear, leaving the assignment that they have been given. Another obstacle cleared, another evidence of God in ministering to these, his followers, in, in proving that he, in fact, did raise from the dead. Fifth, we see this heavenly messenger. Not just an angel of the Lord that comes, but a, an angel of the Lord that comes with a message, and perhaps this is the most important of all the evidences that we find. This heavenly messenger in verses five and six. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. This messenger comes into the forefront. This physical evidence that has been put before these women would never be sufficient. Physical evidence by itself is never enough. The word of God is what must prevail. It's the truth of the word that must inform our hearts and lead us to faith. And so it's the word of God that comes front and center. It's this messenger of the Lord who delivers this message and and affirms this testimony. Not only a testimony of what the prophets had spoken in the generations before, but also the testimony of Jesus himself speaking of his resurrection on at least three occasions. It was the word of God that the heavenly messenger points attention to. It says, as he said, remember what Jesus told you. So Christ's death on the cross was not an accident. Jesus was not a victim of circumstances. Jesus was not overcome by powerful men. This was the will of God from before the world began. And Jesus aligned himself to the will of the Father. And just as Jesus had predicted the details of his death that happened exactly as he prescribed, Jesus would also rise the third day clearly as he foretold in his word. Matthew chapter 16 verse 21 says this, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 to 23, it says, And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And then Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. It was this heavenly testimony that bears witness to the words of Christ, the credibility of those words and the truth of those words now coming to fruition. Sixth, we find an empty tomb an empty tomb in verse six. Notice the angel says, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said, come, see the place where he lay. The testimony of the risen Lord in the empty tomb is validated by by the, the opportunity for these women to come and to see for themselves. Come and see, check it out. These women, at least three of them, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, 
so that the mouth of two or three witnesses, this thing could be established. But it didn't, didn't just end with these three women. As you will know, as you are familiar with the story, these women will go and they will, they will follow the direction of this angel and they'll go and tell the disciples and, and Peter and John will make their way. They'll run to the tomb. They'll burst inside. They'll see for themselves the testimony of this empty tomb. Testimony of the guards. We can also see in this next group, Matthew chapter 28, these guards will testify as well to an empty tomb. And they're paid off by the chief priests. This empty tomb is a clear evidence of the resurrected Lord. Not only for the friends and followers of Jesus, those who, who were dear to Christ and sympathetic to his message, but also for his adversaries and enemies. All they would need to do is produce a body. But the empty grave confirmed the testimony of Christ as a resurrected Savior. The grave was empty then, and the grave continues to be empty now as a continuing witness to the resurrected Savior. Finally, seventh, the risen Christ. The risen Christ that we find in verses 7 to 10. Notice, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see and see I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. In obedience, they, they depart from the tomb and, and make their way to the disciples. And in God's grace, they see him. There he is. Jesus himself meets them on the road. This flood of emotion we, we see even, even in our passage with, with fear and joy that's welling up inside and there, then they see him. The overwhelming mix of emotion must have uh, overwhelmed them. This joy and excitement, this wonder and confusion and amazement that here he is, this Jesus. Jesus meets these women on the road. What a sweet reunion that must have been. How could this be? And in the mix of emotion, what do you do when you encounter the risen Lord? Well, you do what these women did. You worship. You worship. That's the only appropriate response when we encounter Christ. They see him. They worship him. They fall at his feet. They show their reverence. They cling to him in devotion. And then they obey Jesus' instructions. Jesus is alive. His resurrection is confirmed. The evidence of the passage bears truth. But now as we think about the, the reality and truth of the resurrection, now we need to, to, to adjust our focus and now think about what is the resurrection accomplished for us? What is Christ, was Christ's death necessary? Why was Christ's death necessary? And for that we come back to our, our passage that we started with in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I believe if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 966. Turn with me there if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness 
of God in him. He made him who knew no sin. Knowing no sin means that Jesus was not acquainted with sin. Not knowing sin meant that Jesus had no experience with sin for himself. Of course, Jesus knew sinful people, and of course, Jesus knew what sin was. Jesus was a friend of sinners and tax collectors, but Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We find from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. We find from 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, it says, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus was the sinless Son of God, the spotless Lamb as we find in 1 Peter. Thus, Christ's sinlessness exempted him from punishment. Because Jesus was sinless, He was commended by God. Because Jesus was sinless, he was right before God. He didn't need to be judged. He didn't need to be punished. He was uniquely then qualified to become a substitute for the guilty. A substitute for sinners. A substitute for those who stood condemned. Thus God made Jesus sin for us. Not only the representative of sin, but also the embodiment of sin. Jesus was made to carry the burden of sin. God looked on Jesus as if he were sin. He represented it. He embodied it. And then he received the punishment for our sin on himself on the cross because as we find from Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's what all of us deserve. We deserve death and condemnation. So why did Jesus have to do this? Well, Jesus had to do this because of Romans 5.12. Just as sin came into the world through one man, in death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Everyone who has ever walked on the planet is not only tainted by the corruption of Adam, but is willfully rebellious against God. We choose to disobey God's standards. And because humanity has proven its inability to meet God's standards, we continue to stand in judgment. Regardless of all that God did to to draw us into the kind of life that would represent him well. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve created an innocence, and yet they didn't meet God's standards. Abraham, who was called in his family, called out by God, made special by God, had a special relationship with God, and yet still, the sin problem continued. God, who gave a deliverer through Moses and delivered his people from captivity and bondage in Egypt, he gave them the law, he gave them the temple, the very clear standards of God and the ability for the people of God to come into the presence of God, to address him through priests, God would raise up judges and God would raise up kings and God would raise up prophets all to help win us and woo us to a life with God and yet 
At every case, we chose to sin. So when all else failed, God sent himself. That was really the master plan from the beginning. To establish that God alone could keep the standards of holiness. So God makes a way through his son, Jesus Christ. God lived the life that none of us could live so that he could die the death that we deserved in our place, becoming sin for us. What did Christ's resurrection accomplish? We understand now why the death of Christ was necessary. What did the resurrection accomplish for us? We find in the second half of this verse, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. No longer sinners in God's eyes. Those who now enjoy the benefits of righteousness that comes from God himself. The life of Christ he lived is now applied to the account of those who believe, those who are in him. Jesus was made sin for us so that we might be made righteousness. The righteousness of God, take careful notice of that. Pay careful attention. This is the righteousness of God, not the righteousness of you or the righteousness of me. And thus, we have nothing to add to the righteousness that God has established through his son. Christ took our place in every way. He became sin for us. He took our sin and he accredits to us, gives his life so that he could lead us to righteousness. Romans chapter six, verses three to five, put it this way. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The death of Christ leads to new life a whole new way of living, a living that happens as Anna described in her her testimony, the life of God, the Holy Spirit indwelling believers so they can live the life that God has called us to live and enjoy the benefits. So we back up in our text in 2 Corinthians chapter five. The same thing is described in verses 14 to 17. Notice, the love of God controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For those who enjoy the benefits of Christ's resurrection life, not only can anticipate a life with God in heaven, but a life with God today. And God changes the life that we have to look more and more like Jesus, to reflect more and more the image of Christ, to reflect more and more the the heart of Christ, to follow the will of the Father, to more accurately represent what we saw a couple of weeks ago in Luke, that we are loving the Lord our God with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. 
Those who belong to Christ will, able to, will be able to walk in that newness of life where, where this great transaction takes place in, in helping us to move from our self-centeredness and our pride to move to worship of God and wanting to, to complete and fulfill the things that God has called us to do. It really is a life with Jesus at the center, a life of worship. So we move to our final question, and that is, who are the recipients? Who are the recipients of, of, of this kind uh, of, of work of Christ, the, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ? Who are the beneficiaries? Who are the recipients? In verse 14, we find that this happened for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Who is the all here? Who are we talking about? Notice, he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The all in this verse is the all who have died with Christ and now enjoy the benefits of a life with Christ and are now living the kind of life that reflects what we see in verse 17, that we're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Those are the recipients. To make it clearer, at the resurrection of Lazarus, Jesus will communicate to Mary and Martha that I am the resurrection and the life. And in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus will say this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? All who believe are those who benefit from the death and resurrection of Christ. Those who believe in the saving work of Christ alone for salvation. Those who believe that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Those who have come to the place of confessing with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the, from the dead. They will be saved. Those who believe in Jesus for forgiveness of their sins as the only means of righteousness before God to stand before the throne having received and been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so we, we, we end the service with this question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Pastor Knoyer is famous for saying that every message is meant to bring us to the point of saying yes or no to Jesus. This is the moment. This is the moment based upon the truth and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, based upon hearing what the death and resurrection has accomplished, having substantial evidence from the, from the word of God itself and, and, and knowing that the, the truth stands on its own, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Do you believe? Many of you in this room have come to a place of believing that Jesus is the only Savior, the only way to heaven. You have bowed the knee. You have asked for forgiveness. You have made Jesus your Savior. But there are perhaps many in this room who have never come to the place of giving their life to Christ, of asking him for forgiveness for their sins. This is the moment of saying yes or no to God. I would like the, the deacons, would you stand up, please? The deacons, please stand up. 
okay? If you're, if you're here this morning and you have never come to the place of asking Jesus for forgiveness for your sin, of never entering into a relationship with Jesus that he offers through the death and resurrection of Christ, these are the men who can begin to answer your questions. I'm gonna close our time in prayer and I'm gonna ask you to do business with God. Don't leave today without allowing the resurrection power of God, the life-giving power of God to, to rescue your dead heart from sin and to lead you to life with him. Let's all stand and then I'll close this in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you for resurrection. Thank you for Jesus and all that he did to rescue us from our sin, not only the consequence of sin, but also you have uh, freed us to live in a new way of life, not corrupted and in bondage to the slavery of sin, but enjoying the, the benefits of freedom and the ability to please God through our life. I pray this morning, if there's anyone who doesn't know you as their savior, that you would cause them, even in these moments, to recognize their need and to do business with you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you. Have a great resurrection day.